0: Brothers and sisters here at Faith Christian Reformed Church this morning, the first chapter of Ruth introduced us to this guy named Elimelech who we diagnosed with CFD. Do you remember that? Computational fluid dynamics, you say? No. Covenant faithfulness disorder, CFD. Covenant faithfulness disorder is what this guy had. He made a very poor choice moving his family out of the promised land to Moab, not remembering God's covenant faithfulness, not looking down the road at the possible consequences of this choice. CFD was rampant in Israel in those days, in these days, the days of Ruth. Those were the times of the judges. Elimelech and his sons die in Moab, though he moved there so they would all live. Left behind now are Naomi and her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. Orpah chooses to stay in Moab. Ruth and Naomi, you remember, journey back to Israel, to Bethlehem, where the family originated. This is a step now in the right direction, a step of faith. Ruth Ruth makes this step of faith with this amazing and inspiring confession In verses 16 and 17 of Ruth 1, Naomi takes the step of faith too, but she's having a rough time of it. And when she gets back home, she wants the folks at home to call her Mara now because she's bitter. The Lord has dealt severely with her. Life's been rough. But yet, she's in a good place again because she is among the people of God. So, the situation where we pick it up now is that Ruth and Naomi are in Bethlehem, but they have nothing. They're broke. They're two women, two widows with no children in a, in a society where women are totally dependent on a husband or a father or sons for a home, for food, for living. The narrator, verse 1 of chapter 2, kindly ignores the fact that Naomi renamed herself Tamara, and he keeps calling her Naomi. And then we're introduced to Boaz. We read here, a man of standing. Another Bible translation says, a worthy man. He had some wealth. He was a good man. After the three guys introduced so far in this book in the first chapter, we're finally getting a man to look up to, Boaz. The, ma- the name means strength, Bo. He's a manly man. We get the impression that he's a little bit older from Ruth 3, verse 10. He's not married yet, so he's single, he's wealthy, and he loves Jesus. Quite a catch. Boaz. Verse 2, Ruth decides to find some food. We're not sure if Naomi doesn't go with because she's too old or because she's kind of too depressed and bitter to do anything. But Ruth, at least, is not going to sit around waiting for food to come to their doorstep. She's got a plan. She's still taking those steps of faith. She's hopeful that there will be someone in whose sight she'll find favor, someone who's going to have a heart for her and her situation. She goes to glean in the fields, we read. Gleaning was Hebrew welfare or benevolence, and this is how God set it up. You can read about it in Leviticus 19, verse 9, and a few other places. The farmers were not supposed to harvest to the very edge of the fields, but they were to leave stuff on the edges for the poor, the widow, the immigrants. And, and then when they did harvest, they were, if some of the crop like fell to the ground behind them. They were to leave it right there for the same people, for the vulnerable in society. This was no handout. Those in need had to work. And we'll see that. Ruth will be working hard. But we see in in these laws that God wants his people to look out for those in need. The impression we get, unfortunately, throughout the Old Testament is that not too many people paid attention to these laws to watch out for the vulnerable. And with this particular law, of course, the temptation for a farmer, for a landowner, is to harvest every little piece, so every scrap for yourself, because after all, that would just mean uh, more for you and yours. And as any businessman knows, every penny makes a difference. But God's way meant, and it means, looking out for those in need. It's, it's part of the command to love your neighbor as yourself. Farmers were to provide a dignified way for those who are hungry or homeless or broke to eat. Verse 3, in the middle of it, there's, there's a hilarious one-liner that you might have caught. The hilarious one-liner is, as it turned out, Ruth found herself in the field of Boaz, but, but you, didn't, you didn't laugh when I read it. But it is, it is kind of a, a, a one-liner in this sense. That means, as luck would have it, or, or it just so happened that Ruth found herself here, or, lo and behold, she ended up in this field. And we can imagine the narrator winking, Lucky for her, wink, wink, she made it to this field because it's so obvious that it wasn't luck at all. God was leading her. This was all part of God's provision and caring for Ruth and Naomi, his care, his providence. And that's a huge focus in this book, providence. And we're gonna really hone in on that in the rest of this chapter next week, Sunday morning. Now back to Boaz, the landowner comes out he checks on his workers, the harvesters. The Lord bless you, and they respond with, "The Lord bless you." Does this look at all like your place of work? Does Boaz sound like your boss when you come in in the morning? Greetings in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and everyone from their desk waves. God bless you too. And you remember in verse one, in chapter one, we had this picture of a beautiful relationship between. Daughters-in-law and a mother-in-law. Very unusual and rare, rare in the world. When we, we joke all the time about tensions between, between in-laws. We had that beautiful picture of, of people living before God in that way. And now, this harmonious picture between a boss and his employees. They're treating each other like brothers. And, and what it's doing, it's all pointing us to faithful living, and it's pointing us to hope even in the midst of this darkest of times for God's people, the times of the judges. Boaz goes up to the foreman, verse 5, points to Ruth says, hey, who is that? And actually, you read, he says, whose is that? And that's kind of meaning, how does she fit in? Where does she fit in? Well, the foreman says, that's Ruth from Moab. That's the outsider that came in with Naomi, Remember? But she's been working hard all day, that's for sure. You can kind of imagine Ruth maybe noticing the foreman and the boss talking about her, wondering, what What is this guy saying? Why are they pointing at me? Am I going to get kicked out of here? She doesn't have to be nervous for very long because Boaz comes up in verse 8 and he's very friendly, he's very kind, he treats her very well he would have no idea that she might be interested in him. You know, if you think where the, the book is going, they are going to get married. She really wouldn't have any idea at this time that she'd be interested in him. that. That happens later, so that, that can't be why he's being nice. We get the impression that Boaz treats everybody this way. Stay in my field. Hang out with my servant girls. Remember, Ruth, Ruth had no friends or family in this new country, and he's... Given her people to hang out with. These are good girls. Stay with them. He tells the men not to touch her. What's that about? Well, I can't take credit for this next little bit here, but it, it seems to be one of the first sexual harassment policies in history. A woman like Ruth alone, a foreigner, she would have been in danger in those days. Boaz makes it clear nothing is to happen to her. Boys, you touch Ruth, I'm going to bury you in my field. And it's a big field. No one's ever going to find you there. You see, and I, I can't take credit for this either, but you see, Boaz is Old Testament. Boaz is Old Testament. He's tough. Then he says, she can drink straight from the water jars that the men have filled. Ordinarily, a Moabitess Not only couldn't drink from those jars, but she would have to get water for everybody else. Ruth cannot believe all of this. She bows down. That's a sign of respect in those days. Think about it. These might be the very first kind and welcoming words she's heard since arriving. She certainly didn't get the welcome from those women at the end of chapter 1. They ignored Ruth her prayer that that she would find favor in someone's eyes, it's, it's already been more than answered. Then she asks a very good question. Why are you doing this? What's your motive? What's going on? I mean, how many people are looking to be kind to a woman who's a former pagan? She's homeless, she's broke, she's dirty from working in the fields all day, and she's got a bitter mother-in-law to boot. What is his answer? It's very telling. Why is he doing this? He says something that shows her great respect. He's kind of saying this, Ruth, your reputation precedes you. You've taken care of your mother-in-law. You've left your people behind. You've come to join the people of God. You're a woman of faith. Can you imagine Ruth hearing this after all she's been through? She finally gets that encouraging response to the commitment we read that she made last chapter. She must have wept on the spot to hear her decision and her choices for the Lord being affirmed by this man of God. Verse 12, what Boaz says there. May the Lord repay you for what you've done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to take refuge. It's really kind of a prayer. Boaz is praying a prayer of blessing for her, and he uses that picture that we often get in the Psalms. God's child is a small, helpless bird on a branch, out in the cold, alone, tiny, And then the mother bird swoops down with her large, warm, protecting wings and pulls that chick close to her beating heart. That's a picture under whose wings you will find refuge. A picture of God's loving care and protection for you and me, his children. As one pastor describes it, this prayer in verse 12 for Ruth It's an all-encompassing type of prayer that God would provide for her and protect her, that he would be her refuge. And it would have in mind all of the, the, the types of refuge she would need in this world. A home, it would include a prayer for food, for a husband, for children. And as this same pastor who talks about this says, what Boaz doesn't know right now is that he is going to be the answer to his own prayer. He becomes the answer to his prayer. Uh, We don't want to get too far ahead of our but they're going to marry. He's going to be her husband. They would have a child. God would use him to provide for her and be her refuge. Sometimes in life, just thinking about that a little bit, sometimes, like maybe often, we are the answer to our prayers. Our prayers move God to act, but sometimes, think about it, they move us to act. For example, a father doesn't pray, God, feed my children, and then do nothing proactively to provide for those children. No, you do something. We pray for those who are sick and shut in, but we also call them. We write a card. We visit them. We put our arms around them. We pray for the lost and we go seek them. We work as a church together, even as we pray to reach loss, we work together to share the good news. We pray, God, make me a better husband, make me a better wife, and then we take steps in that direction, all with the Holy Spirit's help, all with the grace of God. As the book goes on, we're going to see how God is providing, capital P, but how Boaz is going to be part of the answer to his own prayer. Ruth responds, verse 13, My Lord, little L, another ancient Near Eastern term of uh, respect, you've given me comfort, you've spoken kindness, though I'm lower than a servant of yours. She's right. She's surprised and she should be. Boaz didn't have to do any of this. Even talking to her at all, was going way beyond any sort of duty he had. And then he offered her all of this beyond that. There's a lot more to Boaz than, than talk. There's a lot. Be, he had these words, the Lord bless you. And any of us can, can say words, there's something behind his words. What does all of this mean for us? What does all this mean for us? I've kind of walked through. The verses, well, in the middle of this terrible, terrible time in the history of God's people, this is the church, God's people in the Old Testament, in this terrible time, the Judges, where everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes, Boaz stands as a shining example of what God's people are supposed to be. Elimelech was an example of how people typically were. In those days, doing their own thing, they all had CFD, covenant faithfulness disorder. They were all breaking the covenant. They were not caring about their relationship with God with others. They were ungrateful people. They were ungrateful to God who had saved them, who had sovereignly initiated a relationship with them and had brought them so far. Boaz stands out as an ideal covenant partner. And in this chapter, we're being shown what this nation, what this people, what God's people could have been doing, how they could have looked, what could have been going on, but wasn't. It wasn't, and it wouldn't turn around. Because of the people's wickedness and forgetfulness of the Lord and his ways, About uh, right about a 1,000 years later, Jesus was born in this very town, Bethlehem. Charles Spurgeon, a great, great preacher in London in years past, you know one way he refers to Jesus? He, he calls Jesus, uh, thinking about this book, our glorious Boaz, the perfect Boaz. In other words, the perfect covenant partner, the model of obedience to God caring for the down and out, taking time for a woman that no one else would pay attention to. In fact, she's a foreigner, so people wouldn't only not pay attention to her, they would look down on her. Bringing comfort, bringing kindness, extending generosity, being gracious. That doesn't just sound like Boaz to you, does it? It does describe Boaz, but it also sounds like Jesus Christ. He came the first Christmas, he was born to die so that we would have life, so that we'd be brought back into fellowship with God. Because of Jesus, you and I are found to have favor in God's eyes. When we belong to Jesus, you and I are that little bird under the shelter of God's wings. In Jesus, we're protected, we're safe, we're cared for. In this life and the next. What made Boaz the kind of manly man he was? Strong, kind, bringing comfort and care and all the rest? It's because he knew God and belonged to him. And because he was full of thanksgiving to him. He was overflowing with gratitude. Boaz knew something very important in life. Boaz knew that he came to God empty-handed with nothing, but that God filled him to overflowing. That's why joy and grace and kindness and helping those in need, that's why all of that just oozed out of this guy. We read for our devotions and counsel this past Monday night, just a brief verse, 2 Corinthians 9, verse 15. And the verse says this, Thank God for his indescribable gift. We talked about how thankfulness is to be the defining characteristic of the leaders of God's church, the elders and deacons, and it's to be the defining characteristic of, of every believer that impacts our attitude, our words, our actions, our outlook in life. And we gave thanks that night as we did this morning for all of the great things God is doing at Faith CRC. We gave thanks for the giving in these last weeks. Boaz, you see, he was overflowing with gratitude for the gift, capital G, to come, the promised Messiah, because Jesus was promised in the Old Testament. We live as faithful covenant partners today because we're overflowing with gratitude for the Messiah, Jesus, who has come. Different sides of the cross, same thankfulness, same overflowing joy and grace that we've received. I've got two action steps for us this morning in conclusion. Two action steps based on these verses. One, help the down and the out. Help the down and the out. God calls his people again and again to do so, to have a heart for the most vulnerable in society the poor, the hungry, the widow, the orphan, the alien. That's why faithful covenant partners care about something like abortion. Unborn children are the most vulnerable in all of our society. That's why we care for everyone who's vulnerable. Everyone on the edges. Just as with the gleaning in the fields in Israel's time, we give of our resources to help those in need. This is not a side issue. This is not a minor matter in God's word. This is at the very heart of what it means to belong to Jesus. And it needs to be a top priority on our list of covenant values and uh, in our understanding of what covenant faithfulness means. There's so much we can do individually and should. There's so much that we do together as a church and that you can be part of if this covenant value is missing in your life of helping those in need. And this is a big part of the second two E's of our mission statement. It all flows out of that first E, we experience God's word, But it's a big part of expressing God's love and equipping God's people in our church. I'm really proud of how many ways Faith CRC has, all of them volunteer-led, how many ways our church has to help us love others, to equip us to serve. I'm going to tick them off, many of them. As many as I come up with. I'm probably missing some. We support two orphanages. We have a shoebox ministry for very ill children at Loyola. We're involved in Crossroad Bible Institute, helping people behind bars. My dad heads it up. He's here this morning. You can talk to him about it afterwards pads. We provide shelter and food for the homeless in our region. We visit the sick. We provide transportation to worship for those who are shut in, who can't get out themselves. This past Thanksgiving, we gave 16 full Thanksgiving meals to those in need through collaboration with Jewel Osco. We give generously. You heard it this morning. We give generously to our benevolent needs to help those in financial trouble. We had opportunity to give gifts to those who can't afford it this year with angel tree, with giving tree. We wrote Christmas cards to those in prison through Crossroad. Are you a faithful covenant partner? Are you thankful? Have you received the indescribable gift and you want to give in return? Well, are you you actively involved in caring for the vulnerable and caring for those in need? We need to just be looking out for people. Just like Boaz surveyed his field, he saw Ruth out there. We're to look for people to share our gratitude with. Think of how society would be transformed, absolutely transformed, if all of God's people were doing this. And the fact is, there are many examples of how places, communities, are being transformed where God's people are being faithful. Two, and finally, a final action step. It's this. Live with 110 obedience to God. Live your life with 110 obedience to God. Go above and beyond for Jesus. That was Boaz, wasn't it? He not only followed the law with the gleaning thing, leaving crops behind for the poor, he went way above that by talking to Ruth, Looking ahead to verse fifteen, the rest of the chapter, we're going to see he did even more. He follows God's law, but he does much more. He understands the spirit of the law. He understands grace and generosity, and how that's to be a big part of a believer's life. Sometimes in our obedience and in our living before God, don't you think? Do you ever fall into this? You you kind of just want to slip by. How, how little can I do? How little can I, can I worship? How, 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 how can I get by? Instead of slipping by, let's go all out for the Lord. Let's go from how little can I do to how much can I do? How much can I obey? How much effort should we give? Well, what, what did God give us? Did God say, what do I have to do for these people? What do I have to do for these people down there? Well, clearly he didn't say that. Because what did God have to do? Nothing. We're sinners. We rejected God. We, we did our own thing. We did what's right by us, not caring about God. all. Instead, God went way beyond what he had to do. Talk about 110%, talk about above and beyond, more than we can imagine. He gave his only begotten son to die on a cross for the sins of his people. If Boaz could give 110% in his day, think about us. The book of Hebrews talks about how after Jesus coming, there's even more grace. So we're called and we can achieve more obedience. We're called to more obedience, more grace, more passionate living for the Lord. I had an interesting conversation with a local small business person in our community just this past week. He's not a member of this church. I happen to know he runs an excellent business, an excellent organization. I probed a little bit about that I, to find out how he did. It. He told me some things like this. I won't get into it too much. After some decades at it, he's still looking for ways to improve his business, he said. And he also makes the effort to explain to each and every employee why they do the things they do. He says, I'm never content with where things are at. They can always be better. That sounds like 110%. That sounds like above and beyond for the Lord. It sounds like Boaz. It sounds like our calling in all that we do because we've been given so much by our great and awesome God. God. We're reminded of God's gift. We're reminded of his generosity this Christmas season. And we're going to be reminded of it in communion today. As you see and as you accept God's indescribable gift, Jesus, today, may you, all of you, be empowered by the Holy Spirit to be a 110% covenant partner in every imaginable way in your life. Amen.